Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We have a lot we want to get into before we leave here for the weekend. We are going to be talking about uh, the Brazilian election that will be held this weekend and what is being predicted for it, including predictions of uh, possible violence. We are going to talk about the mayor of D.C. putting her weight behind another bid for statehood. We are going to get into the latest in Donald Trump's latest legal dramas. Uh, But we are, of course, going to talk about the major speech that Russian President Vladimir Putin gave following referendums in Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, We are going to talk about this. So we are going to give it to you now in its entirety. So here is uh, a translation of Russian President. President Vladimir Putin's address to Russia earlier today. Your citizens of Russia, citizens of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, residents of Zaporozhye and Kherson regions, deputies of the State Duma, senators of the Russian Federation, you know that in Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic, in Zaporozhye and Kherson regions, Referenda were held. All the votes were calculated and the outcomes are known. People have made their choice. And this choice is beyond any doubt. Today we are going to sign the treaties on admitting the Donetsk People's Republic, Lugansk People's Republic, Zaporozhye region and Kherson region. I am sure that the Federal Assembly will support constitutional laws on admitting to Russia four new regions, four new constituent entities, because it is the will of millions of people. And of course, it is their right, it is their inherent right, which is enshrined in the Article 1 of the UN Charter, which directly says about the principle of equality and self-determination of peoples. Once again, I would like to reiterate it's an inherent right. It is based on the historical unity in the name of which generations of our ancestors were winning their battles, those who from the roots of ancient truths for centuries was creating and protecting Russia. Here in the new Russia, romance of Suvorov and Ushakov were fighting. They were founding new cities by Catherine the Great and Potemkin. Our fathers, grandfathers stood their ground during the great patriotic war here. And we will forever remember the heroes of the Russian Spring, those who did not agree with the new Nazi coup d'etat in Ukraine in 2014, all those who died for the right to speak their native tongue to preserve their culture, traditions, values and faith for the right to live. These are the warriors of Donbass, martyrs of Odessa and Hatin, victims of the terrorist attacks perpetrated by the Kiev regime, volunteers and militiamen, civilians, children, women, elder people, Russians, Ukrainians, people of various ethnicities. The true people's leader of Donetsk, Alexander Zaharchenko, battle commanders Rzhoga, Kachura, Mazgavoy, Sergei Gorinka, the attorney of the People's Republic, all our soldiers and officers who died as heroes during the special military operation, they are true heroes. Thank <laughs> you.
Heroes of Great Russia, please let's honor them with a minute of silence. Thank you. Millions of people in Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic in Zaporozhye and Harrison regions, they made their choice and our common destiny and millennia history is behind us. That was passed on from generation to generation despite all the difficulties they kept the love for Russia through years. And these feelings cannot be destroyed in us by anyone. That's why older generations and the youth, those who were burned up for the tragedy of the collapse of the Soviet Union voted for our unity, for our common shared future. In 1991, in Belovesca, without asking about the will of regular citizens, representatives of those party elites made the decision to bring their homeland to collapse. And the people, they were turned apart from their motherland. It dismembered our unity, national unity, turned into a disaster. Like after the revolution, they were making dividing borders somewhere behind the scenes, and the latest leaders of the Soviet Union, despite the direct expression of will at the referendum of 1991, they destroyed our great country. They just presented it to the people as a fact. Maybe they didn't completely understand what they were doing and what would be the consequences of this. But this doesn't matter anymore. The Soviet Union is no more. The past cannot be fixed. And Russia today doesn't need this. We are not striving for this, but there is nothing stronger than the willingness of millions of people who culturally, in their faith, in their language, in their traditions, consider themselves to be part of Russia, whose ancestors for centuries lived in one state. There is nothing stronger than their willingness to go back to their true historic homeland. For long eight years, people in Donbass were shelled, were blockaded, were put under genocide. And in Kherson and Zaporozhye, they were trying to grow, cultivate hatred in them towards Russia. And now Kiev regime was threatening them with death to school teachers, to women who were working in the election committees. They were intimidating with reprisals millions of people who came to express their will. But broken people of Donbass, Zaporozhye, and Kherson, they made their choice. I want Kyiv regime and their sponsors from the West to hear me, to heed me. I want everyone to remember that people who live in Donetsk and Lugansk and Kherson and Zaporozhye, now they become our citizens forever. We appeal to the Kyiv regime to cease fire immediately. All the hostilities, the war that they started back in 2014, and to go back at the negotiations table because we are ready to do that and we have said that on many occasions but the choice of the people of Donetsk, Lugansk, Zaporozhye and Kherson we are not going to discuss that the choice was made and Russia will not portray this choice
And the key authorities, they should see this expression of will with respect. And that's the only way we can reach a peaceful solution. We will protect our lands with every means we have at our disposal. And we will do everything to provide safety for our people. This is the great liberating mission of our people. We will restore destroyed cities and towns, schools, hospitals, theaters and museums. We will restore and we will develop industrial enterprises, infrastructure, factories, social and pension support, health care and education. And of course, we will raise the level of security together. We will make it so that people in the new region felt the support of the entire people of Russia, of the entire country, of the republic of all the regions of our great homeland and best homeland. Friends, colleagues, today I would like to address soldiers and officers who participate in the special military operation to the warriors of Donbass and New Russia, those who offer the degree of the partial mobilization, joining the armed forces, performing their patriotic duty, who are coming to the enlistment offices voluntarily. I would like to address their parents, wives, children. I would like to explain what our people is fighting for. Who is the enemy that is fighting against us? Who is trying to throw the world into the new crisis and the war and tries to benefit from this? Our compatriots, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, part of our people with their own eyes, they could see that the ruling circles of the so-called West are preparing for mankind. Basically, now they threw away their masks and we can see their real faces, their true faces. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, in the West decided that all of us will have to follow their dictate. Back then in 1991, the West thought that Russia, after this kind of shock, will never recover and the Ru Russia will continue to follow the path of collapse. And it almost happened. We all remember these horrible 1990s full of famine and hopelessness. But Russia withstood. It was reborn. It got stronger and it took its place in the world. And the West have been looking for the new chance to attack it to make it weaker, to destroy Russia, something they were dreaming about, to dismember our country, to put the ethnicities against each other, something they can remain peaceful about, that there is so great big country with all its natural resources, its natural riches, with the people who will never leave under someone else's dictate. The West can cross all the lines to preserve that neo-colonial system that allows them to remain a parasite, basically to plunder the world using the dictate of their technologies and dollar to collect fees from mankind, to collect this fee of a hegemon. And this is the key motive that they have. That's why they want total sovereignty. That's why they are becoming aggressive towards truly independent states, towards traditional values and independent cultures, and attempts to undermine international and integrational processes that they do not control you.
global currencies and centers of technological development. It is critical for them to see all the countries abandon their sovereignty for the benefit of the United States. Ruling elites of some of the states, they do this voluntarily and they agree to become vassals voluntarily. Others are intimidated or bribed and if they don't succeed, they destroy entire states and they leave humanitarian disaster, ruins in their wake. Millions of people fall casualty to that. They create enclaves, protectorates, colonies, half colonies, but they do not care. The only thing they want is to benefit from that. Again, it is this uh, will uh, to dominate uh, is the origin of the war, uh, that the hybrid war that the West is waging against Russia. They do not wish us to be free. They want us to be a colony. They don't want uh, to have partnership with us, they want to plunder us, they want us to, to be slaves, not free citizens. Free thought uh, is not what they want us to have. Uh, free philosophy is not what they want us to have, that's why they kill our philosophers. And our well-being is a threat to them. Our development is a threat to them. They don't want Russia to thrive. We want Russia to thrive. We need Russia. Again, attempts at world domination have been uh, thwarted many times by, Russian, by the great Russian people and now again we will protect our people and our values. Our enemies believe that uh, they will not have to suffer the consequences of their actions, uh, that there will be no ramifications, but that is not true. Uh, all the agreements that have been reached before on global security or agreements uh, between governments are no longer respected or valued. Many of our former leaders uh, actually listened to our Western uh, enemies and decided uh, to give up their weapons, their power, their everything. They listened to the lies and they believed them. And that led to what is now called a rules-based world order. What rules are we talking about? Who agreed on those rules that the West proclaimed? These are all lies. These are all double standards and hypocrisy. They take us as fools, take us for fools, and Russia is a civilization of thousands of year years, and we will not live according to someone else's rules. It is this so-called collective West that trampled on the principles of indivisibility of borders and now it decides unilaterally who has the right for self-determination and who doesn't have that right. Why, what is the rationale for their decisions? How, who gave them the right to decide all of that? Nobody knows that. This is why they were so enraged by the free choice of the people in Crimea, in Donetsk, in Lugansk, in Zaporozhye, in Kherson. They have no right to even talk about uh, freedom of speech or democracy or self-determination of the peoples there. The Western elites uh, deny not just international law and uh, free rights and 
they keep talking about apartheid. They divide the, the world into the host countries and the, uh, the colonies, the vassals, uh, the barbarians. They call these authoritarian regimes, uh, they call them uh, failed states and pariahs. But there's nothing new in that. The Western elites have been like that for hundreds of years. They have always been colonizers. They have been discriminating and dividing people, peoples into groups and dominating them. We will never accept this kind of nationalism and racism in Russia. We now see Russophobia and anti-Russian sentiment across the world spread by the West. And the West is convinced that its civilization, its neoliberal culture is a template for the entire world to follow and there are no other options, no other scenarios. They do not even wish uh, to accept and repent for their own crimes of the past, their own historical crimes. They blame others for their own crimes. Take, for example, the period of uh, colonial domination. In fact, it was back in, in the Middle Ages that the West started its uh, colonial uh, regimes. Then, the genocide of the peoples of America, the plundering of India, of Africa, uh, the wars of uh, against China uh, the opium wars what the West did was they made entire nations dependent on drugs and eliminating and genociding entire ethnic groups they hunt people like animals this goes against what we believe and treasure as human life and we feel proud that it is our country in the 20th century that led the anti-colonialist movement that allowed many countries to become free uh, to fight hunger and inequality to overcome many of those challenges and the Russophobia and the anti-Russian sentiment that we feel today is in many ways caused by the fact that we did not let our nation our people to be to become a colony we defended others and we defended ourselves by creating a strong centralized state that developed itself strengthened itself based on great uh, moral uh, values of great world religions and based on Russian culture and the Russian language. It is well known that there have been many plans at instigating interventions and launching interventions against Russia uh, after 1917, uh, during the First World War uh, and during the Great uh, Revolution. But by the end of the 20th century, the West was finally able to attack us. They called us friends. They called us partners, but they were actually treating us as a colony, as slaves. They plundered us, plundered us and took our wealth, our money and our power. But now the people in Donetsk, in Lugansk, in Kherson, in Zaporozhye finally decided to restore this great unity of our nation. Thank you.
The Western nations for ages have been saying that they bring democracy and freedom to the world, but it's entirely the opposite. Instead of democracy, uh, they enslave. Instead of freedom, uh, they destroy. The Western world order is not free. It is uh, hypocritical and full of lies. The U.S. is the only nation in the world that used nuclear weapons twice destroying the towns of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Let me remind you that together with the, with the U.K., the U.S. during World War II annihilated Dresden, Hamburg and uh, Cologne and that there was no rationale behind that there was no need to destroy with air bombardment these great cities. They wanted to do that to intimidate the Soviet Union. That was their only goal. They left the West left a horrible uh, history in Vietnam, where they used napalm and other horrible tactics. Remember the Republic of Korea and their actions there. They keep calling South Korea their own allies. What kind of allies are these? We know that many of the leaders of those countries that are perceived as allies of the West are being followed and uh, uh, they are, there are various devices used to listen to them and spy on them. And the leaders of these countries tolerate all that. And all of that is branded as transatlantic solidarity. And all of these horrible crimes that are being committed in the war zones are also excused. And all of that led to a great uh, problem that has to do with migrant flows. People are fleeing their countries going to Europe and elsewhere. There is problem of food security. There's food, there's bread being uh, and grain being exported from Ukraine and Russia. Where is that grain going? It is not going to the to the poorest countries of the world, as they say. Only 5% of that grain is going there. It is all based on lies. And the Western elites are using the tragedies of these people to strengthen themselves, to destroy uh, sovereign countries. The same goes for Russia, uh, for the identity. This actually uh, concerns the identity of France, uh, Germany, and many other countries. They keep... Uh, there are calls on impose, for imposing more and more sanctions against Russia and the leaders of Europe uh, concede to that. But they must realize that when they will be deprived of when they are deprived of Russian resources and Russian energy, they will suffer a heavy blow of their, on their own industries. This is not just being subservient to the to the United States by Europe. This is a direct betrayal of their own people. In fact, what we saw recently was a direct diversion and direct attack on the Nord Stream. 
uh, pipelines. In fact, they started destroying the energy infrastructure of Europe. Who profits from that? Well, those who profit from that are the ones who are responsible, are the ones who are, are the perpetrators. It is this uh, regime is all based on violence and intimidation. This is why we see hundreds of military bases uh, emerging all around the world. This is why we see attempts at creating new military alliances, such as AUKUS, we see the Washington Seoul Tokyo uh, trifecta uh, emerging, and any attempts to challenge this Western uh, hegemony is perceived as a direct threat that requires an immediate response because all they need, all the West needs, is complete dominance. When they talk about their plans, they say that they are peaceful, but they are hypocritical. They talk about containment. And this word, containment, uh, has been found in almost every security document uh, of the West. What does this containment mean? It means undermining the development of any independent and sovereign center of power. We have seen this in Russia, we have seen this in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, and we know that whenever even the allies of the U.S. Uh, go against the party line of the United States, they, uh, the United States even attacks their own allies. Nobody is safe. Everyone is, can, be, can become a target, including our allies, our, the countries of the Commonwealth of Independent States. We have seen a sanctions blitzkrieg against Russia. When they started it, they believed that they will be able to control the world and place it under its whims. Some people believed that would happen, but the majority of states do not want to follow that agenda. They, they choose a path of cooperating with Russia. This kind of defiance is not something that the U.S. expected to see. They have been accustomed to using violence and they believe that this instrument of violence and direct threats is something that will work indefinitely. But this kind of, uh, this, uh, kind of uh, politics is not just the product of uh, uh, the idea of American, uh, of that America is special. There are many other origins of this. They are using fakes, they are using uh, direct and uh, propaganda, they are lying just like Goebbels did and the, the more brazen the lie is the more uh, people believe in it but you cannot feed people with, with money that you continuously print uh, when you continue to push money into the economy you cannot it, it cannot become energy or gas that will warm your uh, flats you cannot feed people with money and this inflated capitalization can also you cannot 
keep anyone warm with that. You need energy for that. That's why politicians in, in Europe also, they have to convince their citizens to not to eat so much, not to take baths that often. And those who start to question this, start asking questions, why is that? They are called extremists, radicals, or enemies. And they point to Russia. They are saying, this is the source of all your problems. And they are lying through their teeth here again. And here is what I would like to emphasize. We have every reason to believe that the Western elites do not want to look for any constructive resolutions for the food and energy crisis that was brought about by them because of their policies that started long before our special military operation in Ukraine and Donbass. And they do not want to resolve these issues of inequality, of injustice. They want to use other recipes that they are so used to. And I would like to remind you that the controversies of the early 20th centuries were resolved by the West by the World War II. And the profits from the U.S. helped the U.S. to overcome their great depression to become the greatest economy of the world and they enforced their dollar as global reserve currency in the crisis of the 1980s and it exacerbated also back in the 1980s but the West overcame it by using the resources of the Soviet Union that was falling apart and eventually collapsed. This is a fact and to get themselves entangled from these controversies they want to break Russia. Other states that choose sovereign path of development to plunder someone else's riches more and to use these riches to fix their problems more. And if this doesn't happen, I do not exclude it, that they will try to bring the system to the outright collapse and they will shift the blame on someone else or they might use their famous formula that the war will resolve every problem. Russia understands its responsibility or its global community and they want to bring these hotheads back to their senses. Obviously this neo-colonial model is doomed to fail and I would like to reiterate that there are true masters they will cling to it until the end because they have nothing else to offer the world rather than this pillaging, plundering system because they want to deprive billions of people, most of the people they want to deprive them from their right for justice and freedom of choice freedom of choice for their future and now they shifted to the radical deniable denial of the traditional values religion of family let's answer these simple questions now I would like to go back to what I've said I would like to address all the people of the country not only to those colleagues that are attending here now I would like to address all the people of Russia do we really want to have in Russia instead of mothers and fathers to have parent number one parent number two parent number three what kind of is that? Do we really want to have in our schools, starting from elementary school, do we want our kids to be imposed to the pervert values that lead to degradation and extinction? Do we want them to impose this understanding?
understanding that instead of males and females, there is some genders. And do we really want them to go through gender change operations? Do we really want it for our children? It is unacceptable for us because we have the future of our own, which is different. And the Western elites, they are working against all the communities, against the people of the Western countries as well. It is against everyone. They want to bring back all the traditional values, traditional faith, and it's like the religion upside down, looks like Latin Satanism. When Jesus Christ was talking about false prophets, he was saying, you will recognize them by the fruits that they will yield. And we can already see this truth, not only in our country, but everywhere. And it is becoming obvious to many people in the West as well. The West is entering the time of fundamental changes. New centers of development are being are emerging and they represent the majority of global community and they are ready to voice their interests and they are ready to protect and defend their interests and multipolar world for them is the way to defend their sovereignty to acquire the true freedom true independence and future their right for independent creative independent development to harmonious process all across the world and in Europe and the United States also we have a lot of like-minded people and we can feel it, we can see it, we can feel their support. People from various countries and communities, they develop anti-colonial, liberating movement against these colonial policies and it will grow stronger and this force will define the future, the future geopolitical realities. Friends, today we are fighting for the just and free path, first of all for ourselves, for Russia. We want to make authoritarian control the thing of the past and peoples understand that the policy is based on exclusivity of someone, on trying to subdue other cultures, other peoples is a criminal policy. They understand that we should turn this awful page and the Western hegemony will be broken and it is unavoidable and it will never be like it was before. The battlefield that history called us to, it is the battlefield for our people, for big historical Russia, for great Russia for great historic Russia, for future generations, for our children and great children, when we have to save them from enslavement, from awful experiments that are aimed at maiming their souls. And we find today so that never could think ever again that Russia, our people, our language, our culture can be just cancelled from history. Today we need to consolidate all our society. And this consolidation should be based on the sovereignty, on freedom, on creativity, on justice. Our values are humanity, mercy, compassion. I would like to conclude my address with the words of the true patriot. Ivan Ilyin. If I consider Russia my motherland, it means that I love in Russian way, that I create and think in Russian, I sing and speak in Russian. I believe in spiritual strength of the Russian people. The spirit of the people is my spirit.
Its destiny is my destiny. Its suffering is my grief. Its prosperity is joy to me. And the great spiritual choices behind these words and many generations of our ancestors followed this path. And today we are making this choice. Citizens of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic made this choice. People and citizens of the Zaporozhye and Kherson regions, they made their choice to be with their people, to be with their motherland, to share its destiny, to win and prevail with their motherland. The truth is with us. Russia is with us. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are joined now by Mark Sloboda, international affairs and security analyst. How are you doing, Mark? Michelle, John, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Political Misfits. Uh, so we have this speech to talk about. We also have some uh, news from uh, from NATO and from Ukraine to get into, but we'll save that for one second. Uh, this was quite a long address, and not a ton of it was actually about Ukraine. What do you think are the most important takeaways from this speech? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, other than the fact that Russia just incorporated four regions of Ukraine or formerly Ukraine into the Russian Federation is, of course, the most important thing, but that's mm -hmm. kind of the technicality of it. Um, there wasn't a lot of discussion of the conflict in Ukraine, of, of the state of it, certainly, you know, not the current big fighting flashpoint in Krasny Leman. Uh, there wasn't any talk of where the conflict will go in the future. Um, and there was discussion of, I think, probably one of the more important things, which is the the original sin, if you will, of the overthrow of the last legitimate democratically elected government in Ukraine in 2014, uh, and the uh, openly West-backed uh, putsch that seized power and its political, social, and cultural repression of the people of East Ukraine uh, and the mass shelling of them to try to subjugate them to their uh, to the uh, seizure of power uh, in Kiev, uh, extend that to the people of the East for the last eight years. I mean, that is what has led to this extreme decision by Russia that the only way that they could protect these people, their rights, their way of life, and protect Russia's national security interests uh, at the same time was to bring them into Russia, something that I think that uh, was not the intention of the Russian government uh, in February, certainly not with regards to Kherson and Zaporozhye, and certainly was not where they imagined this going eight years ago. Uh, a large part of this due to the escalation uh, from the West. He did also not talk about whether the special military operation would now morph into something else, as it is widely suspected to do so, if the Kiev regime refuses to withdraw from what Russia now considers its territory, which of course it will. Um, there's a lot of speculation that it will be uh, kind of upgraded to the technical qualification of a counter-terrorism operation, somewhere between a special military operation and total war, uh, which will, you know, 
drastically change the conflict. It will it will mean that Russia is no longer fighting a self-limiting fight with one hand tied behind the back and a kid's glove on the other. Let me ask you also, while we were listening to that speech, I saw that uh, NATO has responded uh, to this address and to Russia's move to absorb these former parts of Ukraine. Very predictably, NATO has said we will not recognize these regions as part of Russia. But also, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, uh, announced that his country had applied for a fast track membership into NATO. And uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the secretary general of NATO, also said, well, you know, we support Ukraine. We condemn uh, what Russia has done, but also we cannot accept Ukraine at this moment. So anything there unexpected to you? No, no, of course yeah. they can't be. They have, first of all, there wasn't a political no change before, yeah. the, before this. Well, actually, there is a big change because now it would mean direct military confrontation without a doubt with Russia because there are competing uh, claims now to the same territory between Russia and, uh, you know, the West Bank Putsch regime in Kiev. So it would mean NATO immediately going to war with Russia. So uh, but, obviously I mean, like, that NATO has been NATO has liked to say, oh, yes, yeah, spiritually, spiritually, Ukraine is part of us. But uh, no, we're not actually going to make any formal yeah. promises ever. And certainly not now with the country yeah. you know, in a state of conflict. Yeah, de facto, Ukraine is a battle platform for NATO against Russia. I mean, mm -hmm. they're financed, they're trained, they're armed, they get the intelligence, they got uh, U.S. Uh, and uh, European commandos and intelligence running on the ground directing mm -hmm. things. But the Article 5 uh, and the nuclear shield are not extended over Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, that that is uh, a big distinction, though. And, um, you know, Zelensky, you know, it just continued his usual whining routine that he has for the last few years. Uh, but, you know, that's where he's brought his country to disillusion. Let me ask you about uh, some things that Putin consistently invokes. You know, he invokes the Cold War. He invokes the, the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, as, you know, as tragedies. He says the decision to dissolve the USSR went against the people of the Soviet Union and that the people in these new regions of Russia have wanted to restore their historic unity with Russia. And these are, you know, these are, this is language that uh, I think, you know, raises antenna. He also says, I'm not trying to recreate the Soviet Union. Russia can't return to the past. We are not trying to do that. Uh, you know, we are not trying to reclaim former Soviet states. But, you know, in the next paragraph, he also seems to say, but it sure is a shame they're not united with us anymore. And, you know, uh, restating this idea of a great historic Russia. Uh, the West in particular uh, likes to suggest that uh, Kazakhstan might be in the crosshairs. Uh, I wonder I wonder how you think the speech is being taken in some of Russia's uh, non-NATO former Soviet states. And, you know, what we should make of this consistent, you know, it sure is a shame that the Soviet Union was broken up, but don't worry, we're not trying to recreate it. Yeah, of course, there is a longer uh, historical overlap between Russia and uh, most of what is the former Soviet Union before Russia. I mm -hmm. mean, the, the, the Romanov Empire, uh, of course, uh, which had a, a much longer uh, historical pedigree. Uh, so uh, there is that. Um, secondly, it's true that some of the people in the countries that are part of the former Soviet Union desired 
historic unity with Russia, particularly exacerbated by the situations of of you know the seizure of power of an anti-Russian regime in that in that country, but not all of the people, and that's important too. I mean, the people in West Ukraine feel the exact opposite for instance, as the people of East Ukraine. And that is the thing in most of Russia's um, uh, neighbors. There are uh, large populations of ethnic Russians and others who share similar worldviews that, uh, you know, want good relations with Russia, if not historic unity. But uh, when you uh, have this uh, RAND foreign policy strategy of the pressure cooker by surrounding adversary states with hostile nations uh, doing you know, your best by hook or crook to bring those anti-Russian, or the same thing for China, anti-Chinese um, power, you know, uh, polit- politics to, to dominate those countries and use them as a uh, provocation and, and uh, to contain uh, you know, uh, opposing adversary countries, it of course leads to political instability within them. And that is particularly true in the case of the former Soviet Union, where there there were uh, a big ethnic mix of peoples across borders. Kazakhstan, you know, Kazakhstan has about 40% of the population that's ethnic Russian, particularly in the north of the country. I think the West would love to drive a wedge further between Kazakhstan and Russia. You know, they just attempted a regime change there. But unless if you have the situation where a pro-Western coup seizes power in Kazakhstan, then begins to politically and culturally repress the uh, ethnic Russian people of Kazakhstan and turn their country into a NATO military base, which I have to point out, Kazakhstan is stuck between both Russia and China. And China. So I don't, mm. I, I just don't think China seems would be very favorably on that either. It all seems a very unlikely scenario for me, but it makes for great propaganda for the West. Mm-hmm. I also, you know, I I know Mark that you uh, strongly support Russia's actions uh, to uh, uh, defend the previously the the self declared republics of of Donetsk. Uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, and now the the new regions of Russia. Uh, but you know, I wanted to also talk about this sort of larger conflict that Vladimir Putin uh, invokes. He, this was a very anti-imperialist speech. You hear him say that Russia is not going to live under this false Western rules-based order. He calls Western elites uh, colonizers and says they remain colonizer colonizers. That uh, the Western elites. Thwart sometimes violently cooperation efforts between other nations that they don't agree with. A, a lot of stuff that I think a lot of, uh, particularly leftists in the West, would totally agree with. Uh, and Putin says, you know, I'm doing what I'm doing because Russia understands its responsibility to the international community to resist this imperialism, to protect free thought, etc. But Putin is also a right winger. And so when he invokes some of the things he wants to protect Russia from, you know, it's like gender nonconformity and sexual deviance and the, you know, the existence of trans people and the ills of drug use, which are things that, you know, I don't personally agree that those are all terrible things. I don't personally agree with uh, Vladimir Putin's politics, I think, in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways. Um, And so I want to sort of ask philosophically, you know, it is true that powerful Western nations continue 
continue to plunder the planet in the name of of liberation and fairness. And uh, Putin is saying, I am I am resisting with military force this the encroachment of this evil hegemon. Uh, but, you know, if the guy who is challenging the bad guy also doesn't represent the kind of leadership that you aspire to, I'm, what do you think would be a responsible position? If you can, I guess, separate yourself from, you know, I, what I know is your position on the actual conflict in Ukraine. Like, it, it, because Putin yeah. himself invokes this larger conflict, I think it's fair to talk about. Okay, so uh, first of all, I would uh, reject a quick categorization of Putin as a right winger. I mean, maybe in an American con- political context where you are prioritizing social concerns over economic concerns. Fair. Uh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. fair. Right. Yeah, he, fair. I mean, in Russia, he's considered a moderate. Right. For most of his time in office, leaning actually to the liberal side on social issues uh, compared to the rest of the majority of Russians. Um, uh, but I, uh, you know, as far as economic concerns, I mean, he leads a Russian administration that has uh, um, free higher education, uh, free uh, health care and has a enormous public sector employment, uh, all the things which would make him an economic lefty mm-hmm. by Western standards by certainly by u.s standards anyway mm. so um you know everything is in context and when you try to uh, put u.s political context uh or even a european on the rest of the world it never matches up very well um so uh first of all when it comes to the, the things that you listed there i mean first of all i mean i have to say in reply uh, i'm I don't ascribe to postmodern liberal ideology, but I have to say it's not a priority for me either. I place things like foreign policy, geopolitics uh, on a higher priority issue. Um, So um, if you are looking to, uh, you know, for the birth of a multipolar world, right, and uh, resistance to U.S.-backed global military and neoliberal hegemony, if you're waiting for that revolution to be led by a bunch of lefty concerned liberals out of the West who have no chance of ever gaining power in their own countries uh, in the foreseeable future, you're looking in the wrong place. The, the rest of the world that is the multipolar world is a world of civilizations and cultures, China, Russia, India. The African states, many of the South American states, Southeast Asia, even parts of the Middle East that are suddenly starting to lean towards the uh, SCO and the BRICS. Um, That is where and it is their cultures and civilization that they are defending um, uh, from outside imposition of a self-professed universal values of the West. And really, you have to prioritize yourself. What? Do you what do you find more important? These larger geopolitical concerns and the defense of other countries' rights to develop their own way, or you know, uh, lefty liberal, uh, uh, you know, gender uh, and identity concerns. That that's a personal choice. Uh, how do you think Russians are are reacting so far to the speech, uh, and how yeah. much are they invested in in this mission? 
Uh, well, I mean, uh, the polls well before this was announced indicated that uh, a majority of Russians uh, would favor incorporating the Donbass uh, into Russia, uh, much less Sarsone and Zaporozhye. I only expect those numbers to go up now that it is a reality. And I would expect a reaction much like uh, with the reincorporation of Crimea, uh, which would mean a, a big bump in the polls uh, for the president and uh, right now in the, the, you know, a even higher jump in the already quite high support uh, for Russia's intervention in Ukraine. I I think that um, they will see that actually that Putin, maybe he waited too long to do something to help the people of East Ukraine, but uh, he has acted decisively now. I don't think anyone can can draw exception to that. And he gave every option for a peaceful, uh, uh, compromised uh, resolution, political reconciliation in Ukraine, trying to salvage some security relationship with the West before he did so. And I think that will play very well to the vast majority of Russian people. But, you know, there's always a, a 5% that will vehemently disagree. I mean, he did mention, you know, the, uh, the, the U.S. sort of unilaterally uh, tearing up different security treaties, et cetera, to start. I'm also just curious about what happens on the ground now in uh, in Kherson and Zaporozhye in particular, because I Donetsk and Luhansk, you know, have been uh, engaged in this conflict for years. I imagine that they have pretty hard borders with Ukraine. No, uh, no. no? no so what happens? Very, like, how how is this border defined? Borders with Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, this is just an escalation of the conflict. Of course. Okay. Uh, I mean, the big distinction, I mean, there's a huge battle going on right now in northern Donetsk, mm-hmm. where basically the Kiev regime funneled everything out of the Kharkov offensive down to try to break Russian defensive lines there at Krasny Lamon. It's very quiet. Uh, it's not being reported a lot because both sides are being very quiet about it. Uh, but there's probably uh, the, the biggest battle um, of the conflict, uh, you know, so far going on there right mm-hmm. now. Uh, that's in territory that is part of Donetsk. It's, it's extremely bloody. Um, and um, Russia will now have to, um, you know, extend not just, you know, rhetorically and politically, but actually take control of all of this territory. And they've been, fu- they do have it in Lugansk at the moment, uh, but, you know, they only control about 60% of, of Donetsk, um, uh, about 70, 80% of Zaporozhye and, and most of Kherson. Uh, but, the, you know, they're all bloody borders. Mm-hmm. And th- the fact is that, you know, even when it's, once Russia liberates the Donbass and secures those borders, it doesn't end there. Right. That's not going to make the regime in Kiev. You know, they're not going to give up. The West is not going to give up. And uh, this is very likely, you know, going to extend further because of of both the demography of Ukraine that, you know, the Russian speaking, Russian leaning people of Odessa and Kharkov and the military realities is that those borders are very hard to defend you know, in a type of forever war scenario. So I think eventually this process will have to be repeated, probably, unless there's some miracle of a return to to, uh, diplomacy and negotiation to all of East Ukraine up to the Dnieper. Because, you you know... Do you expect to see any 
pressure from parts of the West for negotiation as the winter progresses. I mean, the U.S. seems to be sort of hell-bent on uh, maintaining this conflict. We've just passed another, uh, you know, the Senate has passed another uh, $12 billion for Ukraine and its new spending package. But, you know, we have been talking all along about how difficult this winter is going to be for Europe. And I wonder if, you know, if you would expect to see uh, pressure in at least some quarters to uh, negotiate some kind of end to this just for the sake of political stability in Europe? Um, Hungary, but Orban doesn't really count. You know, the rest of Europe, the West hates him anyway. Um, so, um, no. Um, I mean, we're going to see some governments fall, right? Uh, maybe not immediately this winter, but, you know, certainly by, by you know, the next election cycle as a result of this, if not before, uh, those with parliamentary types of government are more susceptible to quick changes. Um, you know, there's a possibility that radical forces could come to power in some European countries that way. But bar that, you know, the center right and center left in, in, in uh, you know, most Western countries, uh, you know, will support the foreign policy orthodoxy. So I don't expect any sea change, no matter how much their own people suffer. Uh, again, unless there's some radical political shift. And even then, it will only be a few countries, you know, and, and we see the effective power of the United States of corralling its European client states into line. Yes. And so far, just those European states. I mean, I was I was saying yesterday, it seemed like this uh, U.N. General Assembly uh, included a collection of leaders from African nations, from Latin American nations, from Asian nations, very pointedly saying uh, we don't wish to be told who we can and cannot partner with. Yeah, I mean, it's it is only the West. I mean, when they say the international community now more than ever, it means the West. And I know it wasn't shown on the Western media much, but if you listen to the speeches of the the leaders of Africa, of South America, of Asia, yeah, they were totally not on board with the U.S. and and it uh, dictates about who they should and should not trade with and have relations with and so forth. Uh, it was far more negative towards the U.S. outside of the West than it was negative towards Russia. Yeah, yeah, I think that was definitely a takeaway from this assembly. Mark Sloboda, always great to talk to you. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. We are going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits in just a second. Uh, we are going to talk about the election that is coming up in Brazil. Uh, you have the incumbent Jair Bolsonaro facing off against former President Lula da Silva. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation as to whether this election will go smoothly, uh, whether there will be violence, whether, in fact, Bolsonaro is actually going to agree to hand over the reins of power. We are also also going to get into some more national U.S. politics. Uh, John, I know, has uh, an ad from Herschel Walker's camp uh, that he is going to treat us with. John, why, why are we listening to that ad again? Well, it's from Raphael Warnick's side, actually. Mm -hmm. um, oh, right, of Warnick, course. You know, this race is very, very close. And just this past week, uh, Mitch McConnell said that really the balance of the Senate falls on Georgia. Whoever wins Georgia can, controls the Senate. And so the Warnock people, rather than resting on their laurels, they came out swinging with a new ad. Mm -hmm. um, and it's running only in the Atlanta area. They made a $1 million buy this week. We'll have to see how 
effective that is. We're going to talk, I think, a little bit about the latest moves between the judge and the special master in Trump's legal battles. And we are going to talk about whether uh, we can actually cross our fingers and hope for statehood for D.C. All of that coming up here on Political Misfits. We are live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik and we will be right back. without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we are taking a look at the election that's going to be held in Brazil this weekend, where we have incumbent Jair Bolsonaro facing off against uh, the former president, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva. We're just going to call him Lula. He is ahead uh, for the moment. Is that going to last? We will ask our guest. We're joined by Dennis Rogatuk. He's international director of El Ciudadano Media Platform. He lives in Latin America. Uh, he is a contributor to numerous outlets. Dennis, thanks for joining us. Uh, Michelle, always a pleasure. So if I recall correctly, uh, when polls began to be taken, Lula had a sizable lead on Bolsonaro. Then a few weeks back, Bolsonaro seemed to be gaining back some ground, shrinking that lead. This morning, however, I see that Lula has maintained his lead and managed to increase it with a poll showing a 13-point difference between the two. And so I'm wondering if there are any expectations that Bolsonaro somehow manages to pull ahead or, you know, worries that these polls are faulty. So any expectation that the result will be anything but a Lula victory? And do you think it's possible that Lula will uh, take 50 percent or more of the vote in the first round and just walk away with it? Well, Michelle, I think uh, there, are, well, there are several polling firms which are predicting different kinds of uh, leads for Lula. Uh, the ones that I've seen in the last, uh, I would say in the last two weeks, in the last two weeks have actually have indicated that uh, Lula's, Lula's lead has indeed uh, increased. The kind of numbers that I've seen is, is anywhere between 10 and 20 percent uh, of, of, dif- of difference with Bolsonaro. Uh, now, not, but not that many of them are predicting a, um, a 50 percent or more of the, of the vote uh, for him. However, these polls, uh, these, these, these polls, I would say, are not... Um, uh, these, these polls also include like undecided, undecided voters and uh, black voters, uh, who we are still not 100% sure which way, which way uh, they would swing. My guess, my estimate would be that uh, there is there is a kind of a, a hidden vote among the uh, which exists in the in the Brazilian electorate. Uh, the kind of a, the kind of well, I would say this kind of anti-political, anti-establishment uh, vote, which. Um, uh, as, which I would say does not really correspond to any ideological line per se. Rather, it corresponds to the rejection of the of the current political order in Brazil. Now, in 2018, the, the, the you know this voting bloc uh, favored Jair Bolsonaro, which uh, and, and the reason being, of, of course, was uh, uh, you know these you know these years of uh, media attacks and and, and and propaganda against Lula, against Pete, against mm-hmm. uh, Dilma Rousseff, to the point where uh, the, the, the desires of this electoral bloc were basically to, you know, 
a rejection of anything that of anything that they had to do, you know, with what they consider to be the old political order of uh, of Lula and the and the governments of Brazil. Now, the governments now. This this time around, I believe I believe with the with the past four years of Bolsonaro's presidency, with you know uh, ecological devastation, economic economic de- depression, you know uh, violence, just, just just in general a just a complete uh, inco- incompetence. I believe it's much more likely that you know this kind of a hidden boat would swing would swing behind Lula at this last mm-hmm. you know crucial moment. Now I believe Lula does have a very good chance of of winning in the first round. Looking at the polls, looking at the atmosphere, and also really looking at you know the kind of array of political actors that have lined up uh, behind Lula, because we're not just talking about you know left wing and centre left parties, as there are also significant figures on you know among the liberal circles and among the centre right circles who have also backed uh, his campaign. We have to remember that his running mate, Ajado Akmin. Is is also his old political rival who comes from the PSDB uh, political party, which is you know the, which for a long time was the country's dominant uh, center center right force. And there are other uh, say politicians and political figures also fr- from uh, say the cent- from the center who backed his uh, president respect this candidacy such as uh, uh, Maria Maria Silva who was his environmental minister back in um, during his first presidency uh, but who someone who but someone who became actually one of one of his one of his harshest critics in the last in the last years but now you know recognizing you know the necessity, the necessity of defeating Bolsonaro has once again uh, backed uh, his his presidency. Mm-hmm. So with this, you know, this this uh, this, incre- uh, this very broad uh, church of, I say, political movements, uh, political political leaders, you know, combined with the sense, you know, combined with the sense of anti-Bolsonarism, I do I, I do believe that it's, uh, Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro doesn't have any chance of of you know of of uh, gaining the most votes in the first round or, or of winning these elections. Mm-hmm. Now that is not the same as saying that Bolsonaro is going to leave the presidential residence. And so I want to ask about you know what he's been saying about the validity of these elections. Uh, he for the past couple of months has been saying you can't necessarily trust the vote. Uh, he's suddenly concerned about electronic voting machines. And uh, I am seeing reports that two days ago, his political party released a document that claimed that uh, in the uh, as the New York Times uh, glossed it, that a group of government employees and contractors have absolute power to manipulate election results without leaving a trace. Uh, And so, you know, he, he has said. If it's God's will, I'll continue. If not, I'll retire. But saying God's will is not saying it's not exactly the same as saying uh, if, if that's what will. the results show. Yeah. So what how concerned should people be uh, that Bolsonaro will refuse to accept the results of the election? Now, uh, Michelle, the, uh, Bolsonaro has been has actually been saying these things uh for a while now, mm-hmm. actually, actually, even uh, since the uh, since the middle of last year, to be honest, once it became clear, once it became clear that clear that Lula will become his uh, primary political opponent in these elections, uh, Bolsonaro has effectively been, been preparing, you know, for this event, for the eventuality of a defeat. 
uh, here, and these, you know, the you know, these allegations of you know of, of false electronic machines, of you know of of fraud being being prepared by uh, you know members of the Electoral Commission or the the Supreme Court. This is something that you know, uh, Bolsonaro has been stirring that pot for, for for quite for quite some time now, and although the, although both both court and uh, uh, Brazil's electoral authority have stated and you know, have basically repudiated his statements every single chance, every single time uh, that, that, that he made them. Uh, now, he, now, Bolsonaro may not have been able to win over many allies in the, in the institutions of Brazil. However, I think it's important you know, to take what, he is, what he's been saying quite, quite seriously mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, he does have he does have the influence within the within within the military. He does have influence within within certain within some of the business circles still, even though uh, you know even 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 after you know his disastrous mismanagement of the economy, he does still have friends within the corporate uh, elite uh, of Brazil. Mm-hmm. Whether now the question is, would he? You know, would he leave the presidential palace? Would he be forced forced out of it? Would he, you know, attempt to carry out a military coup in the country? A few, I believe, it was a few weeks back in the, uh, I think, during like one of the campaign rallies, uh, he he said that you know, uh, the only way that you know, he only sees three real um, sort of conclusions to this whole process. He said, either 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 I win, I go to jail. Or I get killed. Mm-hmm. This is what you know, this is the kind of stuff that, that he's been saying, uh, you know, uh, con- uh, during his uh, during his campaign rally, during like the the, the public meetings. I believe that I believe that Bolsonaro at the end at the end they will not be will not be able to uh, you know canvas enough support even 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 within the military you know to try to attempt an actual takeover uh, of uh, of the country. Mm-hmm. However, however, I believe that the most likely uh, scenario in this case would actually be to follow uh, Trump's, uh, say, uh, script for for what happened in the United States January, uh, on January sixth. That is to effectively try to try to sabotage uh, the whole the whole process of the, trans- of the transition. Mm-hmm. What kind of support is he going to have, though? I mean, you said that he still has support uh, from members of the business community. He has some support in the military, but that support, you know, from other guests we've talked to, is it's not universal. And no, so it, it doesn't seem likely uh, that the military will intervene to keep him in power. So, you know, who would he have on his side, really? How much of a fight could he put up? The... Um I think uh, when we talk about when we measure the, his political support in the uh, say f- first of all in the numbers the current numbers in the Congress, not not they're not really that favorable uh, to him. Even though the party you know uh, the party which he belongs to now, which uh, we, we have to also we have to remember that Bolsonaro, as in the last four years, has switched parties three times. Twice during his presidency, he actually at one point he even attempted to create his own uh, party, and he failed. And he failed at that. So, in terms of the actual, you know, political numbers in the uh, in the Brazilian institutions, he, I mean, he he doesn't he definitely doesn't have anywhere near uh, a majority. With regards to the numbers on the street, um, he would be more likely to kind of support in the south of Brazil. Uh, so cities like Rio de Janeiro, uh, Sao, uh, Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo, Porto, 
Porto Alegre. So, you know, these in these geographic regions, he would be able to, you know, pull off, you know, more uh, more numbers on the streets here when calling mass mobilizations. But the rest of the but the rest of the country in the in the capital, uh, Brasilia, in the other, uh, you know, across the. <coughs> Across the um, you know the, the the Atlantic coast, that would be extremely difficult uh, for him. Now, uh, what, what would what would a Bolsonaro insurrection look like? I believe um, I believe I believe I believe that, that it could be a combination of, uh, of actually, attempted uh, mass mass mobilizations. With with the support of uh, you know the retired members of the of the Brazilian military, effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing as well, but one thing we do have to note is that uh, there were uh, there, there were some plans. I'm not sure if they uh, if they actually come to the fruition. There were actually some plans or some proposals, basically for the military to organize its own vote counting uh, centers, and to, and for them to also be able to come up with preliminary results for the for the election. So basically, you know, uh, acting as this sort of a parallel electoral uh, authority, which was considered to be, which was, you know, at the time when it was uh, proposed, it was basically considered to be a, an attempt by Bolsonaro to uh, basically, to, you know, to twist and to, to twist the final, the final result to basically present, uh, basically attempt to uh, um, yeah, create confusion, mm-hmm. yeah, create confusion in those in the you know, first uh, few crucial days of. A vote counting with regards to you know what was the actual result. Mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure if this has come into fruition, but yeah, it's something to keep an eye on. And let me ask you before we let you go: just what is at stake in this election? I've seen a lot of reports that the Amazon is at a tipping point. You know, under Bolsonaro, uh, it seemed like. Uh, burning increase, deforestation increase. There's been a lot of discussion of the lawlessness of the Amazon. Uh, I wonder if you see uh, that as an inflection point and if there are some other real tipping points that the country is facing right now. Amazon has definitely been uh, well uh, at a tipping point and in a very dangerous situation the last, the last couple of years of Bolsonaro's presidency, certainly. Uh, and, Lu- and one of Lula's proposals also has been basically to uh, to to turn uh, Brazil into sort of a, uh, say, into the, uh, you know, the, uh, f- to, to basically turn turn Brazil Brazil into uh, you know the front runner for you know for the fight for the ecological uh, issues. So that is to really, uh, well, first of all, save the Amazon, but more importantly, uh, more importantly, actually, you know, implement. Uh, you know, serious serious reforms tackle uh, cli- uh, climate change as well. Now, I believe that <coughs> the main stakes here would uh, are political ones. So, the return of the return of Lula uh, to the presidency, you know, the return the return of the left in government in Brazil, uh, that would you know that would effectively uh, turn all of, uh, the entire Latin American continent uh, pink or red you know mm-hmm. or, or whatever uh, color you like to describe <laughs> as the progressive uh, progressive and uh, socialist governments uh, this would uh, this would this would signify you know this is this would be the, the the only time in history that so that many countries were governed by, were governed by uh, progressive leaders and i believe this will uh, this will this will also uh, further uh, strengthen uh, the select 
community of Caribbean and Latin American nations. Of course, I believe it will greatly strengthen the BRICS community and will probably lead to the expansion of BRICS to include uh, Argentina as well. Uh, this... I believe effectively, effectively, this would this would signal uh, that the U.S. hegemony, or the U.S. dominance in the region, has come to its lowest point ever, mm-hmm. uh, ever in history. And I believe also also uh, paired now with uh, the uh, the United States, uh, I know, uh, in, in getting involved in the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, United States retreat from from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I, you know they're 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 also the dwindling influence in Africa, the losing of uh, the influence uh, to uh, to China. Mm-hmm. We are effectively you know a victory a victory a victory of Lula is uh, a great is a great indicator of the rap- of the rapidly sh- rapidly shrinking of political influence of the United States. Mm-hmm. Exciting times. That was Dennis Rogatuk. Uh, Dennis, where should our listeners go to find more of your work and uh, what you are doing with El Ciudadano? I I publish for uh, El Ciudadano, which is a, um, a media platform spanning all of Latin America. That's www.elciudadano.com. Uh, you can also find my writings at on uh, on Twitter. That's at uh, Dennis underscore Rogatuk. You can also find. <coughs> excuse me. I've also I've also uh, published uh, articles of analysis and opinion uh, at places like uh, the Grey Zone, Jacobin, Levenselev, uh, Sputnik, Sputnik as well, and many other publications. All right, so lots of places to look. Uh, Dennis, say hello to your dogs for me. Okay. <laughs> Whoever was barking in the background, they sound like yeah, very good boys. My, yeah, not my dogs. <laughs> Thanks. Well, hey, you should go get some. Get some for next time. Okay. Thank maybe, you for joining maybe, yeah. us. We really appreciate it. I think I like we're gonna this. we're gonna skip a break here and just head straight north. We have a lot to talk about with our next guest, John. I'm gonna let you introduce him. There is indeed a lot to talk about. Michelle, Hurricane Ian has regained strength and is now bearing down on the Carolinas. The uh, eye, or what's left of the eye, it's it's a Category 1 storm now, is uh, right over Charleston, South Carolina. It's going to turn westward by this evening and then move north into Virginia and West Virginia as a tropical storm. It's weakening, but only after it devastated Fort Myers, Florida, causing billions, maybe tens of billions of dollars in damage and killing at least 11 people. President Biden said this morning that the storm could become the deadliest storm in Florida's history. And that says rescue and recovery efforts continue. Senate races are beginning to take shape four and a half weeks before the midterm elections. Pennsylvania, North Carolina and Arizona are seriously tightening. Georgia is a little more strongly Democratic, and Wisconsin looks to be a little more strongly Republican. A suicide bombing this morning at a school in Kabul killed dozens of people, including at least 19 female students. All of the victims were members of the Shia Muslim Hazara minority. There hasn't been a claim of responsibility, but informed speculation is that it was perpetrated by a member of Afghan ISIS. And today, I'm sorry, yesterday, we told you about a married couple, both physicians, arrested by the FBI for conspiring to give classified information to the Russian government. Well, a former NSA employee was arrested this morning and charged with espionage for attempting to sell classified information to a Russian intelligence service. He faces as much as life in prison or even the death penalty 
if convicted. We are joined by Ted Rawl. Ted is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. Welcome back, Ted. Thanks for having me, John. I always enjoy these chats, Ted. I want to begin with the irony of Governor Ron DeSantis's handling of the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. He's asking the federal government today for billions of dollars in emergency aid. But when he was a member of Congress in 2013, in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, he actively opposed any federal aid to New York and New Jersey, saying, quote, A federal bailout for the New York region after Hurricane Sandy was an irresponsible boondoggle, a symbol of the put it on the credit card mentality, unquote. DeSantis is, of course, likely running for president. So my question to you then is how does he square these two positions? Screw New York and New Jersey, but send tens of billions of dollars to Florida. Well, you know, hypocrisy isn't really a bug in politics. It's a core feature, and DeSantis is no exception to this rule. Uh, the people that he's appealing to are the Trump base. That's where he's. Uh, that's that's his. That's where his political center lies, and they don't care. His voters are not going to care at all about this. It's even if they, uh, you know, somehow uh, note the hypocrisy, they're just going to chuckle, chuckle and chortle because. Uh, like many people across the political spectrum these days in this polarized era, they're just into team politics. We want as much as we can get, and we want to deny as much as, in this case, our enemies, in this case, the blue states, uh, can get. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's, he's going to pay any price for this at all. Um, you know, of course, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And frankly, it didn't surprise me at all. Um, he'll get his money. And nobody's going to care that he opposed Hurricane Sandy uh, aid. I want to ask you about Afghanistan for a minute, too, before we get to politics, Ted. Uh, This attack on a Hazara school reminds me very much of what we used to see when the Taliban were in power in the 1990s and up until 2001. There's literally nothing in that country. There's nothing in that Sunni-dominated culture to protect the Hazaras. They're even the only Afghan citizens that are banned by law from owning guns. Um, I don't think it matters if this attack was carried out by ISIS or by the Taliban or by space people. The fact is that these young girls are all dead. Do you expect to see more attacks like this? Is there anybody to protect the Hazaras, even maybe the Iranians? Well, John, I I mean, I would push back like a half step against what you said. I mean, I think there is a difference between what, you know, Taliban 1.0 did in the 90s when they actively massacred Hazaras, uh, particularly, you know, in their their ethnic homeland in central Afghanistan near, uh, you know, Bagram, and what they're doing now. I mean, we're talking, after all, there was a girls' Hazara school in Kabul uh, under the Taliban 2.0. That's different. I mean, there's more tolerance, um, you know, so, you know, it's not, there's a, there is certainly a difference between actively killing people and then not providing enough security uh, to prevent them by, from being killed by someone else. In this case, ISIS Khorasan, which is the enemy of the Taliban and is trying to overthrow them for not being hardcore enough, right? Um, as, as, you know, weird as that might sound to Western ears. Um, that said, it's certainly true that, uh, you know, the Taliban probably 
aren't losing a lot of sleep over this, uh, but they are losing a lot of sleep over ISIS-K. Uh, they are, you know, yeah. essentially, ISIS-K is replicating the strategy of the Sunni insurgency in uh, Iraq in the uh, in during the aughts uh, when, sorry, the, the Shia insurgency. Um, when uh, it was, you know, basically just there was constant uh, destabilization and terrorist attacks, um, you know, usually against ethnic groups that were sort of, you know, in the minority at the time. And that's, I think that's ISIS-K's game plan here. It's divide and conquer. It's saying, look, we're the true, um, you know, we're the true f- uh, faithful. We're the, unlike the Taliban, you know, we really are trying to create a caliphate here. We are trying to, uh, you know, we're not trying to have a big umbrella. We're not, we, we don't believe in religious tolerance or ethnic tolerance. You know, this is just Afghanistan, make Afghanistan stand great again. And uh, I think that's, so it, it, it could be effective. I mean, if the Taliban definitely are very deeply concerned, and even if they're not necessarily mourning the, uh, the, dead, the dead girls in this case, they're certainly uh, angry at ISIS-K, and, and they're going to try to, you know, they are trying to, to get rid of them. You know, just as an aside, um, the last time I was, not the last time, the next to last time I was in Afghanistan, I went for um, uh, Paramount Studios, right? I was a consultant on the film The Kite Runner. And um, one of the things that I had to do, uh, it was for security, was to interview the leaders of the Hazara community. And one of the things that I learned is that because they are prohibited by law from owning a gun, they're the only people in the country that are, what they what they tend to do instead is to uh, learn, uh, what do you call it, uh, martial arts. And so there are more black belts in the Hazara community in Afghanistan per capita than anywhere else in the world. It was really shocking to me. They're proud of that, and they're angry at the discrimination that they face just because of their religion. But uh, I thought that was um, that was really remarkable to me. Okay, let me ask you because you're in New York, uh, Ted. I got to ask you about Governor Hochul. Uh, she appears to be in at least a little bit of political trouble. Uh, there was a poll that released that was released yesterday showing her winning her race, but only by four percentage points. And it said that the reasons are that New Yorkers are furious about the no bail law. They're furious about the rise in violent crime. You know, we see every day somebody's getting attacked in the subway or a lunatic is stabbing a, a fire woman to death. Uh is she actually in trouble? Are we going to see any real change in New York, either if she wins or if she doesn't win? Well, I mean, she is a weak uh, governor. Let's not forget that she wasn't elected. She was lieutenant governor. She ascended to the throne after the once mighty and uh, and COVID guru Andrew Cuomo, um, you know, stepped down uh, for you know grabbing one too many tuckuses, and so uh, you know he's. So, so she, you know, kind of doesn't have um, much. Uh, she, she does. She first of all, she's not in deep with Albany. She's made the right deals, but she's not a fully fled made member of the political machine there. Um, and also, she's an upstater, right? She's from way right. out west, 
and she's a Buffalo person. And New York politics, all you got to know is uh, downstate, you know, New York City and its immediate suburbs like Westchester are Democratic, deep, deep, deep blue. And the rest of the state is red. Um, she's from the red part. So, you know, she can't really win here because anybody who's blaming her for the crime in the city is going <laughs> to blame her, is, is, you know, mad at her. But then also people in the city aren't that into her anyway because she's considered a conservative Democrat, not a progressive. Oh, interesting. And, and uh -huh. progressives, progressives would not vote for her um, except just because she has a D by her name. It would be a dutiful vote. She's politically kind of like Hillary Clinton. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's just not much enthusiasm when you have, I mean, Lee Zeldin, you know, her Republican challenger from Long Island, yeah. it, is, it is shocking that he's doing as well as he, he is. I lived on Long Island until very recently, um, and he's a zealot. He's a, by New York standards, he is, it's kind of crazy that he's, he's, he's managed to be successful. He's from Nassau County. That used to be deep Republican, but it's not anymore. It's really swingy. And he's, um, you know, a deep Trump Republican. He's pro, personally pro-life. Uh, you know, those are values that don't fly even in Republican New York. Yeah, even in Republican New York. I want to switch now to uh, to this Senate race in Georgia. We've followed this very closely on the show. It's the race between Senator Raphael Warnick and, uh, and Herschel Walker. The Democrats are doing pretty well um, in Georgia, but with Georgia being the most purple of the purple sta states right now um, – it's going to be tough for Warnick, and Warnick thinks he can pull away. At least that's what he said this week. The Warnick campaign came out with this hard-hitting ad this week, and they made a $1 million ad buy in the Atlanta area. The, the ad's not going to appear anywhere else in the state. Let's listen to that clip. Just how extreme is Herschel Walker? He opposes a woman's right to make her own health decisions. He wants to ban abortion even in cases of rape or incest, or to save a mother's life. And he opposes common-sense gun safety laws that save lives. Citing against law enforcement, he'd even make it easier for dangerous people to carry guns in public with no questions asked. Herschel Walker, threatening our health and safety. His extreme agenda puts us all at risk. Okay, um, they don't mince any words uh, in that ad. What's your view on... On this race, Warnick is ahead by between four and six points. Is the race his? Is this something that the Democrats can now turn their attention to other races? I would say not. Um, I think it's pretty much his as long as he doesn't screw up and as long as there's not some kind of act of God, you know, a, a hurricane that messes up voter turnout or something like that in the Atlanta area. Uh, you know, and any. Basically, all things being equal, yeah, he he should get in. But races have a tendency to tighten up as you get closer. Um, I think you know, sort of, the wind is in the Democrats' sails uh, in Georgia. Uh, Joe, uh, Joe Biden carried Georgia very surprisingly. Um, the uh, there's just sort of a general sense now that the state is starting. I mean, even though it's a very conservative state outside of Atlanta, um, mm -hmm. very conservative. Uh, it is still, nevertheless, the, just new, the demographics and the excitement seems to be with the Democrats. 
Herschel Walker doesn't come off as a serious candidate. Um, and I think Georgians kind of were looking for perhaps a little more gravitas. I think, you know, there's the whole Stacey Abrams factor of, you know, the, there's sort of the Democrats have the, the bloody shirt, uh, venge, you know, vengeance voting motivation to go there too. So there's right. just, there's a lot of factors there. I mean, if I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to have to bet my next paycheck on this race, but I would, I would have to, if you forced me to, I'd say, yeah, it is. Um, John Fetterman seems to be fading a little in Pennsylvania. He's still leading Mehmet Oz by either two points or four points, depending on whose poll you look at. And perhaps what will save him will be the gubernatorial nominee, uh, Josh Shapiro's coattails. Uh, but Fetterman is having a lot of problems, mostly because he still can't campaign fully uh, following the the serious stroke that he had in in May, there's one debate that is scheduled the week before the election. But this race is very very close. What are your thoughts on it? Well, as someone who's never voted for a Republican for any office, <laughs> I, I think it's irresponsible of Fetterman to to have stayed in the race uh, uh, following that stroke. I mean, I'm sorry if you can't campaign. You know, I mean, how are you going to how are you going to uh, how are you going to serve? Um, it, it, I mean, if it, Pennsylvanians have to be looking at this race and thinking, "Oh my God!" So on the Republican side, we have like a candidate who really would have been great in say 2014, uh, but you know, Dr. Oz is sort of yesterday's news, um, and you know, on the, and on the, and also he doesn't seem like Pennsylvanian. Um, you know, Fetterman's like seems like the ultimate Pennsylvanian. If you're, if you, you know, if you've seen all the Rocky movies and you think that's right. the entire, that's the Pennsylvania, but Pennsylvania is not, it's a very diverse, huge state. Um, you know, it's, there's Pennsylvania there in the middle. There's the, there's the, the cluster around Harrisburg and York that's got its own, you know, state capital that has its own character. Um, it's, and I just, you know, I just, it's sort of like really two terrible choices. I mean, I mean, I think the Fetterman campaign is ridiculous. I mean, I hate to say it, but I don't think it's ableist to say that, like, if you've had a stroke and you can't campaign, that that should cast some really serious doubt on your ability to, on whether you deserve to be elevated to the Senate. You know what, Ted? I love John Fetterman. I love what he stands for. He was a terrific mayor of Braddock, and I agree with you that he is Mr. Pennsylvania. But I also agree with you that as soon as he had that stroke, and it was clear from his doctors just how serious it was, he should have taken himself out of the race. That would have been the responsible thing to do. That's, but what that's I not think. what I mean, he did. It's, it's, it's sad. You mean, I mean, I don't like to say it. I mean, it's like Bernie Sanders had that heart attack, turned out to be very minor during his campaign. He was at the next debate, I think two weeks later or less, and exactly performed right. great. Um, he kicked butt. Uh, you know, that's just not, unfortunately, Fetterman's just not there. It, it sucks, but it is what it is. Yep, you are exactly right. Uh, I've been very interested in Arizona. Mark Kelly looks poised to win his Senate race closely. But the gubernatorial race is a tie, like literally a tie. There was a poll that came out this morning. And the choice is stark, which is funny to me. You've got a moderate Democrat versus a QAnon-supporting, election-denying Trump loyalist. 
what's happening in Arizona, and I don't even necessarily mean in the race, I mean in the state of Arizona, when when you've got you've got a, a pair of candidates that that couldn't possibly be any more different. Well, they couldn't be more different, but unlike the race in Pennsylvania, I think those two candidates reflect the state of Arizona perfectly. Mm. Um, the you know, I mean, that's basic. Let's face it. You know, there's no room for a progressive Democrat on the ballot in Arizona. Uh, no. There's and 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 let's face it. There's no room for a country club Republican in a state that's so old west that it was. It only be, it was still a territory until 1920, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's really really new. And um, so I, I think, you know, they, it, those two candidates really reflect their party. It's a very purple, con- it's a very purple state, but it's not overlap. It's not like, it's not a swingy state. It's like, there's not a lot of people who are sort of like, well, should I be my ID or am I R? Um, yeah. You know, I've, I've spent some time in Arizona. I just think, you know, it makes sense. Like Republicans there are rabid. Uh, you know, Barry Goldwater wouldn't stand a chance there now. He'd be Not way too far he, he to the left. Primary. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Like like he famously said about LGBT. He said, I don't care if the guy uh, in the foxhole next to me is straight. I just wanted to make sure he can shoot straight. The guy like that <laughs> couldn't make it now. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Well, Ted Rawl, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. Ted Rawl is an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he's co-host of the DMZ America podcast with Ted Rawl and Scott Stantis. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. It's on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The nearly 700,000 residents of Washington, D.C. do not have full voting representation in Congress. Sure, they have a delegate in the House of Representatives, and they can participate in committees and vote there. But the delegate is not allowed to to vote on the floor of the House. And D.C. residents don't have any Senate representation at all. That's 700,000 Americans who pay the same taxes that the rest of us do. Actually, that's not true. They pay more taxes than the rest of us do. And they are essentially not represented in Congress. The D.C. statehood movement has tried for years to correct this injustice. In 2020 and again in 2021... H.R. 51, the Washington, D.C. Admission Act, which would give the district full representation in Congress, changed the name to Washington, Douglas Commonwealth, and admit the district as the 51st state, has been proposed. But each year it dies a quiet death in the Senate. Well, now Mayor Muriel Bowser says she is going to go guns blazing toward D.C. statehood. We are joined by Professor David Schwartzman, Professor Emeritus at Howard University, activist, former candidate for the D.C. Statehood Green Party, member of the Metro D.C. Democratic Socialists of America, and co-author of the book, The Earth is Not for Sale. Welcome, Dr. Schwartzman. Yes, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a political misfit myself. 
<laughs> I think you are, seeing that you were a you were a Green Party nominee. You're in the same boat with the rest of us. <laughs> well, let's start with with a half measure that has been proposed repeatedly over over the years, Democrats in the 1990s came up with a compromise that seemed at the time to have some legs. Washington's congressional delegate would get voting rights and the Republicans would get an extra congressional seat based in Utah, which was on the verge of getting another seat anyway. The measure passed the House easily, but like everything else, it died in the Senate. Why is the Senate so resistant to these D.C. voting plans, regardless of who's in charge, Democrats or Republicans? Well, it was basically the fear from the Republicans in the Senate that this would be a precedent for uh, D.C. to get two senators as well, which would very likely the first two would be Democrats. That's why. That's what they're afraid of. Um, We hear that a lot. We hear from Republicans that they oppose D.C. statehood because such an act would do little more, in their view, than add two more Democrats to the Senate. They don't even begin to address the issue of taxation without representation. Is there a solution, do you think? Well, first of all, it's not simply, I think taxation without representation is really not the critical issue. Uh, It's self-determination of the people of D.C. and and equality with uh, people living in the other 50 states. And that's the issue. So the solution is clearly, the immediate solution is clearly getting at least 50 Democrats in the Senate and, of course, keeping control of the House uh, who support statehood and are willing to uh, change the rules on the filibuster for voting rights. Uh, And right now, Senator Manchin is one of the blocks to statehood because he claims it's unconstitutional, which is false. Yeah, it is not unconstitutional. And and I want to get to that in, in a moment. Um, in 1979, Congress passed something called the D.C. Voting Rights Amendment, and, and it was passed by a two-thirds majority in both houses of Congress. But then only 16 of the requisite 38 states ratified it as a constitutional amendment, and it died. Is there any similar action pending in Congress? Is is such an action even possible with the uh, filibuster as it is today? Well, I think this, uh, we should not replicate the 79 Voting Rights Amendment, uh, which actually did not provide for equal status as a state. Uh, the bills that are in Congress now uh, provide for full self-determination as a state. And that's the remedy, I think, that most D.C. folk would support, as indicated by the 2016, November 2016 advisory referendum, so uh, which got overwhelming support for statehood. Tell us how D.C.'s current status affects its residents. What's different in D.C. for for the average resident compared to a a resident of, let's say, Maryland or Virginia? Yes. Well, first of all, we don't have the ability to tax non-resident income. uh, Right. 
musical arrangement of, for instance, New York, New Jersey, and so forth. They have reciprocal arrangements. We cannot buy the Home Rule Charter back people who work in D.C., which is a large fraction of our workforce, who actually live in the suburbs. We can capture their their uh, income by sales taxes and other means, but not by an income tax. And that would have a big impact in terms of revenue uh, for D.C., the ability to actually tax income of non-residents. So that is one of the most important uh, impacts of not being a state. Yeah. The Constitution uh, vests Congress with broad power to admit new states through legislation under Article 4, subject to two limitations. States may not be formed from existing states' territory without their consent, and jurisdictions seeking to join the Union as states must have a Republican form of government. That Those are both easy. Uh, Congress has historically applied two additional criteria when considering whether to admit a new state. Petitions for statehood must reflect the desire of the people in that jurisdiction, and any new state must have the sufficient population and resources to support itself and to contribute to the federal government. Well, that's why Puerto Rico is not a state, because it doesn't have popular support for statehood. D.C. clearly has popular support for statehood. And D.C., as small as it is, accounts for more income tax, federal income tax, going into the Department of the Treasury than all but 22 other states. So why hasn't this happened? Is this just simply politics? Because because Republicans don't want two more Democratic senators, or is there something deeper here? Well, as many statehood advocates have put it, where D.C. is too Democratic and too black, and that's historically been the barrier, and uh, that is the res- really still the resistance of the Republicans to actually give the people of D.C. Uh, equal status and uh, c- noting that there's really no capital in the world, basically, where the people living in capital do not have equal status to the rest of the country. And it's really uh, it's really an outrage that we are still kind of in a neo-colonial position regarding our federal government. Mm-hmm. And finally, what can people... Um, interested in this in this issue do to get involved? Where should they go? Well, there are many organizations uh, pushing for statehood. Uh, of course, it's important to do outreach to people in the other states to try to get uh, and maybe flip a few Republicans, which is a real challenge, but uh, also to make sure in the midterm elections that uh, we do have at least 50 Democrats in the Senate that support statehood and are willing to vote uh, in the filibuster that would block uh, such a bill in the Senate and, of course, in the House, I mentioned. But here's an important issue which must be confronted. The, the big racial and economic disparities in D.C. are clearly a barrier to more people participating in a militant and stronger statehood movement. Right here. Mm-hmm. And that's where it should really start. We need to 
to actually embarrass our own uh, government and embarrass it around the world that we have this status. And that requires more militancy, and move, uh, you know, comparable to the height of the civil rights movement when thousands of people marched out. I, I was a participant in the 63 March on Washington, 19 years old, when thousands, you know, uh, uh, marched for civil rights and for jobs. And uh, mm. so this is what, this is uh, a challenge we all face. And I, I, by the way, as a present candidate of the D.C. State of Green Party, I am committed to, first of all, to address and reduce and eliminate these racial and economic disparities, starting with child poverty. Uh, and so this, this, let me share something here. Uh, there, you know, uh, even though we had an overwhelming positive vote for statehood in 2016, uh, there was still uh, actually uh, the turnout east of the river was not very good. And there's cynicism among low-income folk that when you ask them, well, do you support statehood, they would say, well, what, we're going to get the same politicians we have now? Uh, so which neglect their interests. So that is a uh, that's a challenge to address, to strengthen the statehood movement, make it more militant, and and at the same time address the disparities that are really shocking, and many of them are human rights violations. So that's my answer to that question. Indeed. Well, thanks for joining us, Dr. David Schwartzman. Dr. Schwartzman is Professor Emeritus at Howard University. He's an activist, former candidate, and current candidate for the D.C. Statehood Green Party, member of Metro D.C. Democratic Socialists of America, and co-author of the book, The Earth is Not for Sale. Uh, we'll take a very short break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Then we're going to come back with some final thoughts and some headlines. Stay tuned. and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We've got a few last headlines for you. John, I've got stories about rabies, pork, and electric cars. I don't know what you've got, but feel free to start if those don't excite you too much. Oh, well, thank you. I, there was a crazy piece in the Washington Post today about a lighthouse that is literally in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay, and it just sold. It it sat on the market for sale for 30 days, being sold by the U.S. Navy, and um, the, uh, the bid was $15,000. And the reason it was so low is that you can't live in it, you can't use it as an Airbnb, and it has toxic uh, chemicals inside. It's got lead paint, it's got um, benzene, and there's all kinds of crap. You can't dock on it, so you have to tie a dinghy to uh, to the steel uh, ladder that leads up into the lighthouse, and you are compelled by law, if you buy it, to... Um, 
to manage it. It's a it's an active so, working lighthouse. So <laughs> I was going to say, OK, so you just pay for the privilege of being able to point at it and say it's mine. But no, you have to actually you can't dock on it, but you have to manage it. Do you have to swim to it? Well, that's that's a good question. You're going to have it's it's for, I'm going to message the realtor. I want to find out. Well, it sat on the market for 30 days. Nobody cared at all. And then yesterday, the last day that you could bid on it, there was a bidding war. And it ended up going for $185,000. The hell? Now, there is such a thing as having too much money. I think this is one of those cases. And the Post was saying that four lighthouses in the Florida Keys sold last month, but each one of them, they went from like between six fifty and and eight fifty. Uh, they're all being turned into into Airbnbs. You know, people want to stay in a lighthouse; they're willing to pay a premium for it. Sure. And they've got, you know, they're they're on dry land. You can dock a boat. There's nothing redeeming about this lighthouse at all. It's just a lighthouse in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. So. They interviewed a guy with the National Lighthouse Society. I had never heard of such a thing. The The Navy has transferred control of all of the country's lighthouses to the National Lighthouse Society, and they actually manage them. And they said, well, whoever bought it, thanks a lot, because we couldn't unload it, and we just can't afford to manage it anymore. It's on <laughs> you now. Hilarious to me. Um <laughs> I want to mention, I want to get further into this um, next week. Uh, I am still incensed that the Biden Justice Department is challenging California's attempt to ensure that pork sold in California is, uh, you know, comes from pigs that have been more humanely raised. Uh, California, through a ballot initiative, attempted to impose on pork producers certain requirements for the, you know, the uh, conditions that pigs could be raised in if you wanted to sell their meat in California. The uh, pork industry got very upset, uh, and the Biden administration has stepped in on their side. And so they are challenging this as, uh, you know, a state taking stepping into what should be uh, federal affairs when it comes to interstate commerce. And now I see this headline from earlier this week. That California is going to mandate zero emission vehicles by 2035. So by 2035, all new vehicles purchased in, sorry, I said California, I mean New York. All new vehicles purchased in New York will need to be zero emission models beginning in that year. This was announced on Thursday by Governor Kathy Hochul. I'm not a lawyer, but I fail to see a strong difference between mandating, you know, creating conditions for the meat that is going to be sold in your state and creating conditions for the kind of cars that are going to be sold in your state. And I just think, I mean, I have a personal interest in this case that's before the Supreme Court this term because, you know, I think animal welfare is important. And I think that it's, uh, you know, the state of animal welfare in the United States is is truly shameful. But, you know, this is the Biden administration stepping in to make sure that even at the state level, uh, states are not going to be able to mandate their own uh, environmental regulations because, you know, if they decide that California is not allowed to say this about pork, well, what's going to make car producers not come and say you right. can't do this about cars? And the only reason I can see that that won't happen 
is because, you know, car producers are just going to switch to electric vehicles and the extraction industry, the energy industry is going to be perfectly happy with that switch because they'll just switch from, you know, they'll switch to mining for way more uh, lithium. And not even, I was going to say, they'll switch from extracting petroleum to extracting lithium, but they're not going to do that. They're just going to do the lithium on top of the petroleum because, you right. know, we're, God forbid that we start phasing things out before we have uh, replacements. So I, I think people should be watching this case a, a lot more closely. Oh, I, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I like that. The other... The other interesting story, remember the rabid fox a while back who was biting oh, people yeah, outside the, the Capitol? Oh, into a bar in North Dakota. No, no, this is the one that was biting people outside oh, the, a, outside Congress, a, outside the Capitol. Oh, um, yes, that's right. Bit a congressman. Yes. Yeah. So that congressman, this is back in April, the com- congressman who was bitten, Ami Berra, uh, introduced legislation this week that would create a government program that would reimburse healthcare providers who administer rabies treatments to people who are not insured because rabies treatments are very expensive. And especially if you don't have health insurance, they can leave people saddled with thousands of dollars in debt. And so he made this statement saying, after being bit by a rabid fox, I was fortunate to have access to readily available and low cost (laughs) vaccines. But for too many Americans, the cost of treatment would break their banks. And so, you know, he's taken this personal experience and is trying to make it better (laughs) for his countrymen. Um, The cost of the treatment... This is according to this story in NPR. The cost of the treatment runs from about $5,000 to $6,000, which does not include the cost to administer the drugs or the markups frequently charged by hospital emergency rooms. Can you imagine you are bit by an animal that you don't know in the wilderness? Obviously, you know, it could be rabid and you go into the hospital and they're like, yeah, that's going to be, you know, probably $10,000 all told. What do you want to do? You want to roll those dice? I just wait and see Not a chance. if you start, you know, getting hydrophobic and then definitely 100% die. Ugh. Yeah, 100% chance just, of death. Uh, so, of course, I hope this passes. But, of course, all it does is highlight how outrageous our, our health care system is that you could maybe uh, end up dying because you're worried about going broke uh, if you get treated for a rabies exposure. But we'll pick Scandalous. that up next week. Because that's all we've got for today. I want to say thank you, of course, to everyone who joined us today and all week. Thanks to all our engineers and producers there. I see you in the control room, Saul. And uh, on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you on Monday. <laughs> 